Last week we studied First uh, Kings chapter 17 and we were introduced to Elijah. If you remember, we said that Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. The nation of Israel had uh, embarked upon a civil war, and because of that, the tribes were divided. There was a northern kingdom that's called Israel in the Bible and a southern kingdom called Judah. And we said that the northern kingdom had about 19 kings, and none of them were godly. They were all wicked rulers. Now, there were about eight or nine kings in the southern kingdom of Judah that, were, that had their bright moments, that... that were trying to live for the Lord and seek the Lord and do the right thing. But when you came to the northern kingdom, they were all very, very wicked. And the end of chapter 16 says, the most wicked of them all before any of his predecessors came along, and his name was Ahab. So we were introduced to Ahab, this wicked uh, king of Israel who was worshiping false gods, leading his people to worship false gods. He married a woman uh, who worshiped Baal and worshiped Baal with her. He was a wicked ruler for God's people. And then... In chapter 17, we were, we were introduced to Elijah. Uh, we were introduced to the one whose name means my God is Jehovah or the, the Lord is my God. And we saw that he's from Tishbe, which is in the sticks when it comes to the geography in that area. He was from the country. We don't really know anything else about him except that he was a Tishbite. And God raises him up to, to speak a message to Ahab. So that's what we studied last week. And we saw last week how the Lord prepared Elijah for the ministry he had for Elijah. He showed him some things about his his protection and his provision and his purpose for his life. And he also showed Elijah his power through some miracles so that Elijah would have the confidence, the faith in the Lord he needed as he went forward to serve the Lord. I love this quote from J. Oswald Sanders. He's speaking of the, the, the backdrop of wickedness among the people of the northern kingdom. He says, like a meteor... He, Elijah, flashed across the inky blackness of Israel's spiritual night. So things were very, very dark. But but here comes Elijah, streaking across the the landscape like a meteor, shining the light of righteousness in in, in that place. And so that's what we have studied up to this point. And we saw that Elijah and Ahab had a quick kind of encounter the beginning of chapter 17, where Elijah, by command of the Lord, says it's not going to rain, there's going to be famine, Ahab. And then the Lord gets him out of there to hide him by the brook so he could be protected from the wrath of Ahab. Well, we're going to see them uh, encounter one another again here in chapter 18. And First Kings chapter 18 is really a chapter about prayer. The entire chapter is about prayer. And we're going to learn a lot of principles about prayer by looking at Elijah's life. And we, we are intended to do this because the New Testament tells us to do this. Matter of fact, hold your place, but turn to James, James chapter 5. New Testament book of James, right after Hebrews. James chapter 5, look in verse... 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might or you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's a a prayer principle. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. But look at verse 17. Here's the illustration of that truth. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And so the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Elijah is an illustration of prayer, what prayer ought to look like. It's the illustration of of an ordinary man praying to an extraordinary God and seeing supernatural things happen. And so we're going to go back and read the stories and learn from Elijah's prayer life so we can pray like him. So look back with me. First Kings chapter 18. Let's just kind of read the first few verses to establish the context for this chapter. It says, It happened in verse 1, after many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So it's been, it's been dry, no rain, for three years. And the Lord says, I want you to go to Ahab. I'm, a, I'm about to send rain. But God wanted to send rain in such a way that everyone would understand that he was God. So he says, go, and I'm going to show 
them that I'm sending rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. Ahab called Aholiab, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord. Uh, I'm sorry, Obadiah, who was over the household. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. So we see a little bit of background on the wickedness of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel was so wicked, she wanted to kill all the prophets of the one true God because she worshipped Baal. She worshipped a false god. Then Ahab said to Aholiab, Go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and uh, mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. So they're trying to find grass to keep their animals alive because there was such a great famine in the land. Now, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? He said, It is I. Go say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. He said, What sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come until Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I am your servant. I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. So he's saying, don't make me do this. I'm going to go tell him I saw Elijah. We're going to come back to where you were. You're going to be gone. And he's going to kill me. Now look what he says in verse 13. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? And now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now look at verse 17. This is interesting. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? The king said, You're a troublemaker. Now, the opposite was in fact the case. Ahab was the troubler of Israel. His wickedness brought the judgment of God on this nation. His leadership, the, the leadership of his wife Jezebel, their worship of false gods, that's what was troubling Israel. That's what had brought the judgment of God. But he calls Elijah a troubler of Israel. Just kind of a quick side here. When, when you seek to live a righteous life, ungodly folks will say you're the one causing all the problems. That's just a, just a little principle there to remember. Verse 18, he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, another false god, who eat at Jezebel's table. So, Elijah said, I tell you what, we're going to show you who the false god is, or who the false gods are. We're going to show you who the one true God is. Now remember, his errand was to go say, rain is coming. Rain is going to return back to the land. But before that happens, God's going to use Elijah to teach Ahab and the nation of Israel a very, very important lesson about the reality of the one true God. So we're going to study from here on to the end of the chapter uh, this story, and again, we're going to learn some really powerful lessons about prayer. And there are two prayers in this chapter. The first prayer on Mount Carmel and the second prayer on Mount Carmel. So we're going to divide up our, our teaching into those, under those two headings. First of all, let's think about the, the first prayer on Mount Carmel found in verses 17 through 39. There are four major truths that this story is about to teach us. You ready for these four major truths? Are you, are you ready for the four? Okay, all right, you're like, I don't know, Wade. I'm just, I eat too much chicken, I can't think. I'm just, four major truths that this story teaches us. Number one, when we are confronted with false worldviews, we should seek conversion. Well, let me say it like this. When someone's belief system is leading them to destruction, we should try to point them the right direction. Does that make sense? So when we are confronted with false worldviews, we should seek conversion. Look what happens in verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Remember, Elijah said, I want you to gather all these prophets of Baal, all the Asherah prophets, I want you to get them all together at Mount Carmel. So Ahab sends the word, that's what happens. Elijah came near to all the people and said, now let's look at this question. 
How long, he says, will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord, that's the one true God, the God he serves, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people do not answer him a word. Why does Elijah set up this confrontation? Why does he tell Ahab to gather all these false prophets together? Why does he confront them in this way? This was dangerous. This could have cost him his life. Why was he doing this? Because he knew that Israel was filled with a false religion, worshiping false gods. And he knew if the people of Israel followed after those false gods, the end would be destruction. And so what does he do? He says, I want to confront your false worldview. I want to confront your, your idol worship, your, your pagan idolatry. And I want to show you the one true God so you get off of the wrong path on the right path. Get off the path of destruction onto the path of life. And so Elijah here is modeling for all of us what we ought to be about. We are surrounded in, in our families, in our, in our workplaces, in our relationships, we are surrounded by folks that buy into false worldviews. Their belief system is leading them to destruction. They don't believe in the one true God. They don't believe in Jesus Christ, the only way to be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, John 14, 6. I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And there are people that do not believe that. They are not followers of Christ. And the Bible says if someone dies and they're not a follower of Christ, they will spend eternity in that awful place called hell. That's everlasting destruction, right? So we ought to want to intervene. We ought to want to step in and say, listen, let, let me challenge you to think about Jesus, the truth. Let me show you what the Bible says about him so that you can get off the, the path of destruction, the broad road of destruction, onto the narrow path of salvation. That should be our goal. I love Elijah's spirit here to, to bring this thing to a head so he could show them the reality of the God that he served. When we are confronted with false worldviews, we should seek conversion. This is why we do outreach. Why we invite people to our church and invite people to our connect group and we have fall festivals and we try to get involved in people's lives. This is why we plant churches. This is why we go on mission trips. This is why we send out uh, cross-cultural missionaries because we know that false world people, uh, false worldviews destroy people's lives, right? We know that. We know that. And so we want to share the good news. We want to share the truth with them. Islam destroys people's lives. Hinduism destroys people's lives. Buddhism destroys people's lives. Mormonism destroys people's lives. Jehovah's Witness destroy people's lives. Um, materialism destroys people's lives. Hedonism destroys people's lives. And everywhere we look, we will find false worldviews. We've got to confront that false worldview with love, with compassion, with gentleness, but with truth, right? What am I just doing here? That should be our heart, to want to wanna help people get on the right path. So here's the first thing we learned. When we are confronted with false worldviews, we should seek conversion. Because here's the second thing. People who worship false gods have no hope. Just, just imagine with me for a moment, living life without hope. You know, a lot of people live that kind of life. They have no hope. They have, you know, kind of across their fingers, hope so kind of hope. But they don't have the biblical hope, which means confident expectation. They live with no confidence in what's coming. No, no confidence in their relationship with God. No confidence in the future. They have no hope. Wouldn't it be miserable to live with no hope? Dealing with death and dying and, and problems and trials and uncertainty and the brevity of life. And you have no hope? That would be miserable. And that's the condition of people that follow false worldviews. We see it here in this text. Look what the Bible says in verse 26. We'll back up to, to verse 22. Elijah said to the people, I, I alone am a, uh, left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two uh, oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood. Put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood. And I will put no, put a, not, not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So we'll call on both gods and the one that... that causes fire to fall from heaven, that's the one true God, obviously, right? 
And all the people said, that's a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many and call the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called in the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. This is sad. Oh, Baal, answer us. But look what it says next. But there was no voice and no one answered. Why? Baal is a false god. He's not real. He's the creation of men's minds. Then it says in verse 27. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. That word, gone aside, could be translated, gone to the potty, to use my preschool vernacular. We have preschoolers. Gone to, that's, that's really the way it could be translated in the Hebrew language. So think about what, think about what Elijah is saying. He's saying, does your God have needs? Does he need a nap? Does he need to go to the bathroom? Does he need, to, does he need some downtime? I mean, does the God you worship have needs? Because my God doesn't have any needs. He doesn't need me. I need him. He's the, he's the one true God. And so he's challenging them to think through their, their false God. So look what it says in verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances till the blood gushed out on them. So they're working themselves into a religious ritual frenzy they're cutting themselves trying to go through all these rituals and things to get their god to answer the god of baal when midday was passed they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice but there here it is again but there was no voice no one answered and no one paid attention they wanted their god to answer them but they would never be answered by baal because baal is not real right no one's paying attention to them. No one's answering them. They are hopeless. And this last verse we read, no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. That's the condition that people live in apart from Christ. They may have some gods in their life, but that, that God, those gods don't love them. Those gods can't save them. Those gods are false gods. No one's paying attention to them. No one is answering them. They are hearing nothing but silence when they call on their gods and so we see here that that people who worship false gods have no hope no one answers no one pays attention uh, I, I know i've talked about india a lot because i just got back from india but i've i've been all over the world i've seen idol worship all over the world i've seen it in in uh, asia i've seen animism in africa i've seen uh i've seen hinduism in india i mean i've seen i've seen it everywhere and and you see this, this people create these, these things with their own hands. And they bow down and worship this idol. And it's so sad because there's no hope in that. They're, they're, they're thinking, maybe if I say the right thing, do the right thing, show the right devotion, maybe my God will show favor to me. But there's no hope of a relationship with God, of, of a certain eternal future. They live without hope. People who worship false gods have no hope. So when we... When we offer someone Jesus, we're offering them hope, confident expectation. And, and, and hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? Hope can carry you through this life if you have real hope in God. So, people that have false worldviews should be confronted so they can be converted. And people who worship false gods have no hope. Here's the third major truth we see from this story. This is where it gets really good, all right? One praying person can make a difference. What do we learn from Elijah on Mount Carmel? We learn that one praying person can make a difference. Do you believe that? Do you believe one praying person can make a difference? Look what happens in verse 22. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Now that wasn't true. The Lord's going to show him in chapter 19 that there are some other prophets that have been hidden and protected by God. But... Elijah feels alone. He's the only one here on Mount Carmel. I'm the only one here representing the Lord, representing the one true God. And yet, God works with power through that one man's life. One praying person can make a difference. Look what it says in verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So, so what Elijah's doing here, he's going to pray to the Lord. He's calling out on the name of his God. 
Now, I want to just kind of pause here just for a second and study this prayer of Elijah because it is a powerful prayer. It was a great prayer. It was great for at least four reasons. These are there in your notes. It was great, first of all, because it was addressed to the one true God. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Notice here he's not being generic. He's not just saying, O God. He's talking about the specific God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He uses his covenant name there. See where it says, O Lord? Notice it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the the name Yahweh, sometimes translated Jehovah. That's the name of God that the Lord revealed to Israel when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. It's an important name of God, a personal name, a covenant name with God. And so Elijah here is not praying this generic prayer. He is praying to the one true God. He wants to make sure that everyone listening knows he's praying to the one true God. Now, our nation loves generic prayer. They love. If you want to get up and pray to just God in a generic sense and just wax eloquently and close down your prayer, people are thrilled. They love generic prayer. You won't offend anyone with generic prayer. But if you get up in a public setting and begin to talk about Jesus, the one true God that's known through His Son, Jesus Christ, you better watch yourself because you will offend people. And they will try to shut that down quickly. And so we need to have the courage to pray, not generic prayers, but prayers to the one true God. Prayers in Jesus' name. Jesus told us to pray in his name. He, he instructed us, commanded us to do that. So we need to have the courage to pray in Jesus' name. Wherever we go, wherever, wherever we're asked to pray, or wherever we, we need to make sure that our prayers are not generic. They are addressed to the one true God that is known only through his son, Jesus Christ. So, it was addressed to the one true God. By the way, I'm trying to think if I want to go down this road. We're running out of time. Um, No, let's keep going. All right. It was addressed to the one true God. Here's the second thing. It was for the glory of God. It was for the glory of God. That's why there's a great prayer. Look what it says in verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Why is Elijah doing this? Why is Elijah praying? Why is he gathering together these false prophets? Because he wants the one true God's name to be glorified. God, I want you to work so you get the glory. Sometimes our prayers are about our glory, aren't they? And I just want to be very blunt with you. God's not interested in our glory. You know why? We don't deserve it. There's only one in the universe that deserves glory. Worship, right? That's the one true God. He's not interested in our glory. So if our prayers are all about us, they're all about, you know, making us more important, more prominent, or more, uh, more abundant in terms of material goods, if it's all about us, I don't know if God's too interested in those kind of prayers. But when you begin to pray that things will happen for His glory, I believe that's the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. And this is a great prayer because it's a prayer for the glory of God. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask God for things, personal needs in our life. We absolutely ought to do that. I'll talk some more about that in a few moments. But the, the, the motivation behind asking God to do something should be His glory. God, would you do this in my life so people will see your hand and give you glory? Right? It's a great prayer. It's for the glory of God. Third, it was a great prayer because it was passionate. I love this. Look in verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Don't you love that passion? Answer me, O Lord, answer me. When's the last time you prayed a prayer and prayed like that? A lot of times our prayers are you know, kind of quick and neat and tidy. God, would you bless this person, help me here, do this, do that. Amen. Jesus' name, amen. And we kind of go about our days. When's the last time you were so desperate to see God work? I mean, you were crying out, Answer me! Answer me, Lord! Please! Do something here! That's passionate prayer. I like it. We need more of it, don't we? And Elijah was praying a passionate prayer. But then last, it was others-focused. Not only was it focused on the glory of God, it was focused on the good of others. Verse 37, he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. God, I want to see these people 
converted. I want to see them change. I want to see them get off the, the path of destruction onto the path of life. So he's praying for the good of other peoples. And that's the kind of prayer that God delights to answer. And so Elijah here prays a great prayer. One, listen, one praying person can make a difference. I officiated a, a funeral service. It's been months ago. And I was um, partnering with a, an older retired pastor. Well, he's retired, but he's still preaching at a church. Which is the way I want to be, by the way. But he was still preaching, and, and um, we uh, went to the graveside together. We left, and we rode in his car to the graveside. Just me and him. And I began to ask him some questions about pastoring in his life. And it, it was just a rich time. It was so good. And... He began to tell me some stories about his family, and he mentioned, just kind of in passing, that his, uh, his, his mother-in-law died some, some years in the past. I forget the context of the story, but he told me his mother-in-law died. But he told me what a prayer warrior his mother-in-law was. And I thought, that's neat. And he, he made this comment, and it's always stuck with me. He said, when she died, listen to this, when she died, we actually missed her prayers. We could tell that level of prayer was not there anymore. We, we, we missed them. We, we could tell that we weren't being prayed for the same way we were when she was alive. She was a prayer warrior. So here's a question for us all to consider. This is convicting. You ready? When our time here is done, will anyone miss our prayers? Will anyone miss my prayers? Will anyone miss your prayers? Are you praying to that degree for others? Because one praying person can make a difference, can't they? Praying for your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, your uncles, your co-workers, your, your spouse, your church, your pastor. One praying person can make a difference. We learned that from Elijah. And there's another thing here about this first prayer on Mount Carmel. This, this helps us understand why one praying person can make a difference. God answers prayer. Prayer is, is a little mysterious. It's hard to understand how you know, God is sovereign and He knows the end from the beginning and how He works everything out and how He responds to our prayers and how He does all of that. I mean, it's, it, it, if you think about it too long, it can really kind of blow your mind and kind of wrap your mind around prayer and what it's all about. But here, just to kind of cut through all that and to make it very, very simple, here's what we know based on the Bible. God answers prayer. Amen? So let's pray. Don't, you don't have to have all that figured out to pray. Just pray. God answers prayer. Look what happens. Now back up with me to kind of set the context. Look in verse 30. He gave the Baal prophets their opportunity to call their God to send fire on the altar. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. There's a sermon in that phrase right there, repairing the altar of the Lord, but we won't go there tonight. But it'll preach, I'm telling you. We need some repairing of altars in our churches. But that, I'm, not, I'm not going there. So, verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. They made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood they did this. You can imagine the, the bell prophet standing there going, what's going to happen here? Then he says, do it again. <laughs> do it. I want you to pour water on it again. Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. I wonder if these prophets of Baal were laughing at this point. Who does this guy think he is? Do it a third time. The water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And then we see... In verses 36 and following, he begins to pray. One praying person can make a difference. What happens after he prays? Verse 38. Then, after his prayer, then the fire of the Lord fell. Wouldn't you like, I mean, there's, there are stories in the Bible that I would just like to be there to see that. Wouldn't you? This is one of those stories I would have loved to have been on Mount Carmel to see this. And I think maybe, this is speculation, I think maybe in heaven, we're going to be there forever, Perhaps the Lord will allow us to kind of give us a replay, you know, kind of, it's on DVR, you know, and, and, and he'll give us a chance just to kind of watch him again. So, Lord, can we just see Mount Carmel? I just want to see what that looked like. I don't know, maybe not, but it might be pretty cool if we do. Don't hurt, it won't hurt to ask. Okay. 
The fire of the Lord fell from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones of the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. It was so hot, so much fire, that it, it evaporated all of the water that was there in that trench. Now look what happens in verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So they're saying, Elijah, your, your God, the one you're representing, he's the one true God. We see that now. Then Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. In other words, saying, hey, let's kill these folks that are leading all of God's people astray. Let's take care of these false um, teachers and, and, that, are, that are leading people in a wrong direction. But notice here, he prays, God answers the prayer, fire falls from heaven. God answers prayer. So one praying person can make a difference. And, you know, sometimes I ask myself, do I really believe that? Because, I mean, theologically I believe it. Because, you know, I, I know what the Bible says, and I be believe that God answers prayer. But, I mean, do I really believe that? Because if I, if I really believed that God answers prayer, I think I would probably pray more than I do. How about you? I mean, if we really believed it, if we really believed it, then we would be passionate prayer warriors. And so we see here that God responds to the prayer of Elijah. And you say, wait, that was, that was a long time ago. Elijah was a prophet of God. You know, he was a miracle. God worked miracles through him, and that was kind of a special thing. And do we, do we still need to have these kind of tests? I mean, where we, we, you know, put our God up against other gods and say, you know, let's see which one's the real God. Well, this is pretty interesting. We were... In Madurai, India, we were riding around in a car, and we were talking to the missionary that we were working with in that area, and he was telling us about work with Hindus. And if you know much about Hinduism, it's a very uh, ancient, very confusing religion. They, they, they believe that there are like 30 million gods, which are really manifestations of three major gods. And it, but again, it's very confusing. It's idolatry. It's, it's, I believe it's demonic. It's dark. It leads so many people astray. And we're talking about how you, how you deal with people that are, that are Hindus, that are, that are so embedded in this belief system. And, and they've been embedded in it since their, since their childhood, and that's all they know. And it's not just a part of their religious beliefs, it's part of their lifestyle. I mean, everything revolves around this Hinduism. How do, how do you begin to challenge them to consider Christ when you have 30 million other gods? Right? I mean, well, how, how, do you, how do you do that? And he said something that I thought was very interesting. When he said it, I thought immediately of 1 Kings chapter 18. He said, we tell people that uh, we tell them about Jesus, share, you know, share the gospel with them, and uh, we tell them in these next, in these next few weeks, um, in addition to your prayers to other gods, pray to Jesus and see if he answers you. See if he shows you himself. See if he reveals himself to you. Now, when he said that, I thought, hmm, I don't know about that. Thinking, That's kind of weird. Then I thought, wait a minute, that's 1 Kings 18. Let's, let's, you pray to that God, pray to that God, and see which God answers. And what they're seeing is that if someone will pray to Jesus, they're seeing that Jesus will work and reveal himself to them in, in a multitude of ways. And that's how they're seeing Hindus come to Christ. And so uh, this idea of confronting false worldviews, confronting false religions, and, and saying Jesus is the one true God, and holding him up and challenging people to think about him and even seek him or seek information about him is, I believe, a biblical strategy. We can have confidence because, listen, our Jesus, our God is real, right? I mean, we need to have the kind of confidence that Elijah had. We shouldn't be afraid uh, to say that our God is real and to even put our God to the test. And so it's a pretty neat application of this text. And so here are the four major truths we learn about prayer from this first prayer of Elijah on Mount Carmel. When we are confronted with false worldviews, we should seek conversion. People who worship false gods have no hope. One praying person can make a difference, and God answers prayer. Hope you remember those principles every time you read 1 Kings 18. Not just a neat story of the supernatural work of God. It's a story about one ordinary man praying. Because remember said in James, Elijah has a nature like ours. He was just a man. And yet God worked mightily through his prayer life. Now before I get to the second prayer, any questions on that? Any questions before we jump down to the second one? Yes, Tina?
Yeah, that's a great question, Tina. And I'll tell you, I, I think probably in, my, in the past I've taught that God will not answer a lost person's prayer, but that's not true. God will answer a lost person's prayer. And the, the, the biblical evidence of that is found in Acts chapter 10. Remember Cornelius? Cornelius uh, was not a Christian. He was, trying, he was seeking after God, but he was not a Christian. And he's praying, and during his prayer, God reveals to him that he needs to go send for Peter in Joppa. And he reveals to Peter that he's about to be uh, summoned by Cornelius. Remember that whole story, the visions that, that Peter had? Uh, that's, an adva- that's an example of God answering a lost man's prayer. Then Peter comes, he shares the gospel, Cornelius gets saved. His household gets saved. It's a really powerful story. So I, I think there is a biblical rationale for a lost person praying, asking God to show himself. And, and God in his grace and wisdom and power can do that. Um, so, yeah, I think, that's, I think what, what you said is, 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 is good. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and let me just kind of clarify just for a second when I talk about lost people praying this is not lost people praying in terms of relationship with the father that's a big difference when we pray we pray as god is our father you know we can go to him to meet our needs and th- that's that's not for lost people that's for people that know the lord they're children of god but in terms of praying and asking god to reveal himself i think the biblical precedent is there so the prayer is definitely different and and you, they, a lost person cannot expect the privileges of prayer that a saved person has as a child of god um but there is that precedent there biblical precedent for um, someone that's lost, uh, calling out to God and God revealing himself to them. That's what I was talking about with the Hindu uh, uh, evangelism going on. Is that another hand raised? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, and that's a, a Yeah, that's Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. So good, personal testimony. Good, thanks for saying that. I see another hand raised. Exactly, yeah, what, what Larry just said, you could also have people praying for you too. Um, to, to work in your life in that way. So they could have responded to other people's prayers. Yeah. I see another hand. Yeah, the, the Cornelius example is him seeking after God. He's, as a matter of fact, he's called a God fearer. He was he was not he didn't know the Lord through Jesus, but he was seeking the one true God, and God responded to that by sending him a witness. Yeah, yeah and you know the, the teaching I've heard in the past is that the only prayer that God will answer from a lost person is a sinner's prayer. Um, and I, I just don't know, I don't think biblically that's the case. Um, but yeah, you're right. Lo- the sinner's prayer is a lost person praying and God answering that prayer. So, um, but some people say that's the only prayer that God would answer from a lost person. But again, I don't think that's the case. Um, and I think there's other biblical precedent, that, you know, uh, over in Matthew, Jesus says the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. That there's some, there's some common grace in this world that people receive just because God is good better to us than we, ought, than we deserve. And so people may experience something of the blessing of God even though they, they don't know him. Um, and, it, and it's intended, I think, to show them the reality of who he is. So they will come to worship him. Yeah. Good. Good, good, good questions. Any other questions? Yeah, Tina? No, I'm sorry. You've already had one. Sorry. No, I'm kidding. All right, go ahead. What's that now? I'm sorry. Say it again. The righteous and righteous, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah, God is patient. And, and when he, every day we have breath as a person that's far from him, that he gives the opportunity to know him, that's his patience revealed in our life. And so, um, yeah, that's definitely a reflection of God's grace to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe? Uh-huh. 
What verse are you in there? Um, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone's got friend, does it would. Um, yes. Um, that one thing I would say about that verse is that's the that's the blind man speaking. So his theology wasn't fully formed yet because he wasn't saved. If you look at the end of this passage. Jesus comes to him and finds him and leads him to salvation in Christ. So, in context, he's saying something, you know, that he believes, um, but, it, but it's not, these are not, not the words of Jesus. These are the words of this man speaking in this passage. Um, but I think the basic, the basic premise of what he's saying is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Any other questions? Any other questions? All right. Let's look at the second prayer very quickly. We'll finish up. Um, the second prayer on Mount Carmel. Look back with me in 1 Kings. We're going to look at verses 41 through 46. Just a, a brief little passage here, uh, but really powerful. I'm going to show you a little interesting tidbit when we get through. 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah prays again. He prays for uh, God to send the rain. Now remember, at the beginning of this chapter, God said, I want you to go. I'm about to send rain back to Israel. So he's praying in accordance with what God's told him he was going to do. Let's just read his prayer. Then I'm going to come back and make some, some comments about it. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up. Uh, now look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. He said, go back seven times. It came out at the seventh time. Then he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So pretty interesting story about uh, Elijah looking for rain. Now, uh, Charles Swindoll has a really good book on Elijah, and I'm about to borrow his stuff for this section, okay? These next five points come from Chuck Swindoll because you just can't get any better than what he said. So uh, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. We're going to look at what Chuck Swindoll says. And if you haven't read the book Elijah by Chuck Swindoll, those character books he writes, it is really good. The book David by Chuck Swindoll is excellent if you want to read that. Uh, Esther is really good. So he, he's written some really good books. But let me, let me give you just five things he says about Elijah's prayer here that we can learn from. Number one, he separated himself. He separated himself. It says that Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. And he crouched on the earth. This is the posture of prayer. And put his face between his knees. So Elijah says, okay, it's time for God to send the rain. I'm going to go pray that God would send the rain. So he gets away from Ahab. Ahab probably at this time is just reeling. He saw fire fall from heaven. He saw these prophets of Baal murdered, uh, put to death. Uh, and he knew Jezebel would not be happy about that because she was a Baal worshiper. And so he is uh, reeling. But Elijah says, it's about to rain. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm so sure of it. Look what it says there in verse 41. It's as if the, there's the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Now, I don't know if he actually heard something, but it seems like there's not a cloud in the sky. This is just Elijah saying, it's about to rain. I know it is because God said it's about to rain. And he gets away. Goes to the top of the mountain to pray. He separated himself. Now, there is a time for public prayer. Public prayer is very important. But public prayer, praying around other people, is to be fueled by private prayer. And Elijah here models getting alone to pray, which is precisely what Jesus told us to do. If you read over in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. He said, Go into the inner room, and he says, shut the door behind you. In other words, get alone in a private place where no one can hear you while you pray. You know why it's important to pray where no one can hear you? You know why? Because if people hear you pray, you won't be honest with God. You know what I mean by that? If people are hearing you pray, you're going to pray a prayer for their benefit, not really what's going on in your heart between you and 
of the Lord. As a matter of fact, I used to journal. I used, I used to write journals when I read, read my Bible, and I'd, I'd kind of write prayers to God and all that kind of stuff. And I realized one day that I wasn't really writing a real prayer. I was writing for someone to read it later. Like someday someone will get this journal, and they're going to read it, and I wanted to see, hear how spiritual I am. And so I was writing, and I was thinking, I'm not, this is not real. This is not, so I don't journal much anymore. I mean, I, if you do it, it's great. Keep on doing it. Um, but, but it's just hard for me to journal and be authentic before the Lord. Same principle. If you're praying all the time, the only time you pray is around other people, you're never going to be real before the Lord and deal with the sin in your life and the, and the, the, the challenges in your life and the struggles and the anxieties. You're not going to be real with God if other people here. And Jesus knew that. So Jesus said, go into the inner room, shut your door behind you. We were going to do a modern-day paraphrase. We might say, leave your iPhone in one room, and the remote control, and go into the other room and pray in that room where no one else can hear you, where you are private, you are in a quiet place praying to the Lord. And so Elijah separated himself. And this is a great example of how we ought to pray. Secondly, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. It says, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. That is a humble posture, is it not? It's a humble posture. It's one thing to bow your head. That's a, an act of humility. You're humbling yourself before the Lord. I think bowing your head is important. It's another thing to bow your knee. That's another step of humility. You're, you're bowing your knee before the Lordship of Christ. You're, you're bowing your knee, recognizing His authority, recognizing His rule and reign over your life. That's very humbling to bow before God. It's, a, it's even another step to lay on your face before God. It says He crouched down with his head between his knees i mean he was getting down low before the lord these are postures of prayer humility now i think it's interesting listen to me that this happens right after his victory with the prophets of baal i mean if anyone had a an excuse to be a little cocky it was elijah right i mean he just called for fire and fire fell from heaven and, and he had you know in our mindset, he would have had every right to go to the top of Mount Carmel and say, okay, God, send rain, do it again, you know, and kind of strut up there like he was somebody. But Elijah understood he was not somebody. He understood he was just a normal man that God was choosing to use. And so he humbles himself. Humility, here's what's so remarkable. Humility does not readily follow on the heels of achievement. I'm going to say it again. Humility does not readily follow on the heels of achievement. When we achieve something, when things are going good, we're, we're unlikely to be humble, but Elijah shows humility here and bows before the Lord. So let me just encourage you to approach God with an attitude of humility. If you can bow, get on your knees. If you can get on your face, get on your face. Try doing that in your prayer life and see how that changes your approach to God. If you physically can't do that, bow your heart, bow your head, bow uh, humbly before the Lord and call on Him with that humility. He humbled Himself. The third thing, say, wait, this is really good. Chuck Swindoll, I told you, all right? Number three, he was specific. He was specific. Verse 43, he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked, said there's nothing. So we know he's praying for rain, because he wants to go and look and see if there's a cloud approaching. So he's praying specifically for rain. He was specific in his prayers. If there's any area in which we all need to grow in our prayer lives, it's probably in the area of specificity. Sometimes we pray prayers like, you know, God, bless the missionaries, you know, bless my church, you know, bless my family, bless my kids. Well, that's okay, but what if we got a little bit more specific than that? I mean, what is it we want, how do we want God to bless our kids? How do we want God to bless our church? How do we want God to bless the missionaries? Well, whatever the answer to those questions are, pray that. I think God is honored by specific prayers, that you're not just kind of going through the motions, but you're asking God to do specific things in specific situations and specific people's lives. He was specific in his prayer life. So next time you're praying for a missionary, don't just say, God bless the missionary. Pray for their marriage. Pray for their kids. Pray for the, the rigors of living in a cross-cultural setting. Pray for their homesickness. Pray for their, their family that's back, uh, you know, back in the states missing them pray pray specific prayers for folks and i believe god is honored by those specific prayers when you pray specific prayers you are saying god we know you care about the details next he was persistent he was persistent look in verse 43 
He said to his servant, go, look. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing, no cloud. Now, many of us at this point would have said, okay, maybe we'll try again later. God's not going to send the rain today. So we'll ask him again at some point down the road. Is that what Elijah does? What does he do? Look what he says. Verse um, 44. I'm sorry, verse 43. Go back, he said, seven times. And it came out on the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And so he's praying, and when he doesn't see the answer the first time, he prays the second time. When he doesn't see the answer a second time, he prays the third time. When he doesn't see it a third time, he prays the fourth time. Doesn't see it a fourth time, prays the fifth time. Then a sixth, and then a seventh time. He prays seven times for God to send the rain. He was persistent. He did not give up. He told the servant, be prepared to go back seven times. We're going to keep praying until this thing happens. He was persistent in his prayer life. Now, turn to Luke 18 with me. I want to show you a parable that Jesus shared about persistence in prayer. Luke 18. We're going to close on here in just a minute. But look in Luke 18, verse 1 with me. Luke 18, verse 1. Now he, Jesus, was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Look at me for a moment. How many of you ever lost heart in your prayer life? You don't see an answer, it's not immediate, and you just lose heart, and you just kind of give up, all right? This prayer is to help you not to do that. Help you to pray and not lose heart. Look what it says there in verse 2. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, listen, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he's saying, listen, even an unrighteous judge gives in to persistence. Think about God. He's not unrighteous. He's righteous. And he will bless our persistence in prayer. Let me say it like this. God, your Father, loves to be bothered. Think about that. He loves to be bothered. The unrighteous says, don't bother me, woman. But God says, no, he's righteous. And he loves when his people, his elect, come to him with their needs, crying out. He says, day and night, day and night, they're crying at me. God loves that. He loves to be bothered. Now, you know what it's like to be a parent, and, and your kids come to you, and, and at that moment, you don't want to be bothered. We all have our moments, right, where we're tired or whatever, and we don't want to be bothered at that moment. Our Father loves to be bothered. So let's bother him. Let's pray. Amen? Over in Isaiah, it speaks of giving God no rest with our prayers. He doesn't need rest, so he doesn't need, so he doesn't need us to give him rest. Let's pray. Let's, let's give him no rest with our prayer lives. Elijah was persistent. He did not give up after the first time praying. I think sometimes God delays in answering our prayers to see if we're really serious about what we're praying. And if we give up after the first time, it's obvious we weren't that serious, right? Right? So be persistent. Elijah was persistent. He prayed seven times for God to send the rain. Now turn back with me. 1 Kings 18. The second prayer models several important things. Elijah separated himself. He humbled himself. We see that Elijah was specific. Elijah was persistent. But last, he was expectant. Look in verse 44. It came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. So notice it's not raining yet. There's just a cloud. So look what happens next. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. So he's saying, Hey, it's about to rain. Go tell Ahab, the rain is coming. Elijah was praying with expectancy. He knew that God was going to send the rain. He expected God to answer his prayers. Look what happens next. In a little while... The sky grew black. Remember, it's been three years since it had rained. The sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. Then Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And so we see here that 
Elijah prays with persistence and he prays with expectancy and God comes through and God sends the rain. Now I want you to catch this. Don't, don't tune out on me here because this is really important. Why was Elijah expectant? He was expectant because of what God said to him. Look in the beginning of chapter 18. We read it, but I want to show this again. Verse 1. It happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So he knew God had said, I'm going to make it rain. So his prayer for it to rain was in accordance with God's will. So he was expectant. Because he knew that God would do it because it was God's will for it to happen, right? So if we pray things according to God's will, we can have that same expectancy, that same confidence. Turn to 1 John 5. It's really important. 1 John 5. You need to have this marked in your Bible if you don't have it marked. First John chapter 5, verse 14. The Bible says, this is the confidence which we have before him. The confidence, the expectancy that if we ask anything, everybody say anything. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So if we're praying for something and it's God's will, we can have the same sense of expectancy that Elijah had, right? So the important thing is we pray, we pray according to the will of God. We pray in line with God's will. Elijah did that. Now, you say, wait, what if I don't know if it's God's will or not? Well, just leave it up to God. Pray it. If it's God's will, he'll answer it. If not, he won't, and he knows what's best anyway, right? By the way, some of the greatest blessings in your life have been when God has not answered your prayers. Right? Amen? That's because God knows what's best. So pray, and and pray confidently. No, if I'm praying this, and this is God's will, it's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, and what is will, I don't want it to happen. Isn't that good? That's liberating, isn't it? To pray with that kind of perspective, that kind of expectancy, to know that if you're praying, if it's God's will, it's going to happen. You'll have what you are asking for. Man, that is exciting. And if we really believe that, we'd pray more, wouldn't we? Maybe it's God's will, maybe it's not, but I'm going to ask God to do this, knowing that if it is His will, He will answer with power in my life. And so, the second prayer on Mount Carmel is a picture of expectancy. And so, next time you pray, think about this template that Elijah shares with us. He separated himself, he humbled himself, he was specific, he was persistent, he was expectant. So all of 1 Kings 18 is about prayer. That's what it's about. It's all about Elijah's prayer life and how God moved with power through his prayer. Now, turn back to James. I know we already read it, but I want to show it to you again. Maybe this time you'll see it in a new light as you look at the story closely. James chapter 5, verse 16. Now think about this verse in context of what we just studied. Think about it. Ready? Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. How do we know that? Look in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like us. Just a man. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. The sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Isn't that neat? Elijah's just like us. Let's pray. And I, you know what's interesting about this? There are two examples of prayer in 1 Kings 18, right? The one on Mount Carmel where he calls for fire, the fire falls, then in praying for rain, and God sends rain. The example he uses is the, the rain coming. Isn't that interesting? They didn't use Mount Carmel as an example. I don't know why that is, but we know that both prayers were powerful prayers. Both prayers were were prayers that honored the Lord. And so, so Elijah is a model for our prayer lives. The, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China, a great man of God. He wrote um, uh, some very important books that are still being uh, used by many today. 
And his son Howard uh, commented on his father's discipline in prayer. And listen to this quote that Howard says about his father related to prayer. He wrote, The sun never rose on China for 40 years, but that God did not find my father in prayer. The sun never rose on China for 40 years, but that God did not find my father in prayer. In other words, every time the sun rose in China for 40 years while Hudson Taylor was there, he was on his knees before the father praying for the people of China. Maybe that was why he had such great success, right? And saw God do so many great things because he was a man of prayer. I wonder, listen, I wonder, and I'm talking to myself here. I wonder when the sun rises on America tomorrow. I wonder how many of us will be found by our Father praying. I want to be like Hudson Taylor. How about you? I want to be like Elijah. I want to be mighty in prayer. We need God's help to give us the discipline, the strength to daily come to Him calling on His great name.